0: Under these emotional conditions to preach, very thankful for the church family and all the prayers lifted up on our sweet little girl's behalf. We're going to continue our sermon series in 1 Samuel, and so if you will grab your Bibles and open up to chapter 10 with me, 1 Samuel chapter 10, that's where we're going to be this morning. Thankful to be able to open up God's Word. Please follow along as I read from 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, that being Saul's head, and kissed him and said... Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabar. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them And be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, "'What has come over the son of Kish?' Is Saul also among the prophets?' And a man of that place answered, "'And who is their father?' Therefore, it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Hear the word of the Lord. There is a lot there in chapter 10. It may have sounded to some like we just jumped right into a story without much context. And so just briefly, I want to just remind us of where we were in chapter 9 Um, Not a complete overhaul, but just in a few sentences, we were reminded that what started this whole process in Saul's life came about because of some lost donkeys. That's where it all began. The son of Kish was told by his father, son, grab a servant and go and find the lost donkeys. And what we were able to see very clearly from God's word last Lord's Day is that the Lord's providence was unfolding before Saul in all, even the little moments, the mundane moments of life unfolding, leading him ultimately to Samuel. And God also made known to Samuel exactly what was to transpire and how Saul was the one whom the Lord had chosen to be king over Israel. And so, We we got to the end of chapter 9, and you hear the last verse, and they were going down to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, Tell your servant to pass on before you, and when he is passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. And as we read that last week in our care group, aloud as a group, it really does end the way my father-in-law said, dun, dun, dun. You're kind of just waiting. What's going to transpire? How is this going to unfold in Saul's life? And it's quite right. Saul is, even the readers are, looking for resolution. Not sure exactly what's going to unfold. And so we get to chapter 10 and see very clearly what all happens in Saul's life as he's being installed as the king of Israel. So, this chapter, chapter 10, can really be split into two main sections. There is a lot of detail in each section, but overall, we see the private coronation for Saul in the first part. So, everything that transpires, verses 1 to 16, as I'm studying through the text, it seems to be all for Saul the signs the prophecy even the exchanges people observing this man this son of Kish who's acting very different his his uncle questioning him this is all what god is doing in Saul's life and then the, the latter part verses 17 through 27 so the first was private coronation the latter part is the public coronation for Israel it is made known very clearly that this is the man that God has chosen for Israel. They demanded a king like all the nations, and we're seeing in this chapter the private coronation for Saul and the public coronation for Israel. So we're going to try to tackle both sections, and just knowing that there is so much happening in this chapter, uh, some things we're only going to be able to mention in passing, and... We, as elders here at Grace Covenant Church, want our people to be like the Bereans and to go home and continue to study in God's Word what you've heard, and so I pray that this is just the beginnings of you digging further into even this particular chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 10. What we see throughout this whole chapter is God's divine activity, superintending all these things and bringing them about If you missed it in chapter 9, the Lord's providence over all things, I pray by the Spirit of God, you would see God's sovereignty in all that transpires in 1 Samuel chapter 10. We see the sovereignty of God in this private coronation with the signs given to Saul, the rushing of the Spirit of God upon Saul. All of this is validating God's rule and reign over everything, And in particular, we're shown in Saul's life, his sovereignty over all that's transpiring in Saul's world. So first, we open up with this private coronation followed by three signs. So the way that it begins, Samuel is with Saul alone. They've sent the servant off so that Samuel can share the word of God with Saul. And in verse one, we see, then Samuel took a flask of oil And poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be the prince over his people Israel? And so we see this beginning anointing by Samuel over Saul. And all of this is for Saul to understand that this is not man made or a a, a thought that came to one man that's sharing it with another. This is from the Lord. Saul, you are anointed to be the prince over my people, says the Lord. So there's the first, this private coronation, and then Samuel's very clear that there will be three accompanying signs to let you know, in case you missed it, Saul, that this is from the Lord. So first, a word spoken in verse two. When you depart from me, you're going to see two men near or by Rachel's tomb, very specific, and they are going to tell you something. They're going to tell you that your donkeys were found and that your dad is anxious about you. And it unfolds exactly that way. So Saul, living this out, this is validation, confirmation from God. Second, two loaves of bread given in verses 3 and 4. Then you're going to go a little bit further to the oak of Tabor. Three men are going to be going up to Bethel to meet you. Listen to the details. Three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. Now, I'm sure at this point in the journey, Saul would have been happy to have not only some bread, but also the wine. But no, no, just the two loaves are for you. I mean, it is so specific. This is God's confirmation. He's got three loaves. You only get two of them. The details, God is sovereign over all of it. And this is for Saul to hear, to experience, to know that this is from the hand of God. And then the Spirit of God, the third sign, will rush upon you and you will prophesy. We see this in verses 5 through 8. These men will come, these, um, these prophets with their instruments, and verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them. And what we see, what's interesting about this third sign is this is the only sign that, that is actually explained in real time, so to speak. So as the story continues, the first two signs do happen to Saul, but it's the third sign that is specifically kind of honed in and unfolded before us of actually how it plays out in his life. Now, I want us to just pause for a second and look at verse 9 because this is is something that really does jump out to the reader. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Another heart. He's going to have the Spirit of God rush upon him and be turned into another man. And for many, as you read through the Old Testament and then to the New, these are some questions that begin to form What's going on here? The work of the Holy Spirit upon Saul. What, is this, what does this mean that he was given another heart? And I, I just want to spend a little bit of time here and begin first by saying I do not think that we can be dogmatic about whether or not this is speaking of regeneration or just the anointing to fulfill a specific task. I don't think we can be dogmatic about that, but I don't believe that this is salvific, this new heart given to Saul, as we look at his life unfold before us in 1 Samuel. So I don't think we're talking here about regeneration that you see in Ezekiel or or John chapter 3, you must be born again, but rather as we look at the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. There is the operation of the Spirit upon individuals to fulfill a particular task. That is an important role of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people. So, for example, the verb is used of the Spirit rushing upon Samson. We read this in Judges, um, several places in Judges. But some of the examples of when the Spirit of God rushes upon Samson is when, if you remember, he tore a lion into pieces. If you all remember that, crazy stories happening. The Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he was able to fulfill a a particular task. Or another time, he struck down men. Or even when he broke the ropes of the Philistines who had bound him all of those experiences were told the Spirit of God rushed upon him. So, the same is true, I think, when we look at Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10. The rushing of the Spirit indicates his equipping from God for the tasks of leadership, what he has been called and anointed to do. And so, in this sense, Saul is not another man salvifically, rather receiving what he did not have previously. So aside from saving activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, we do believe that the only way someone is saved is by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, and it is by grace through faith in the Savior. Okay, that that has never changed, Old or New Testament. But in the New Testament, we also see the Holy Spirit working in empowering ministry. Giving people the abilities or um, equipping that they need to perform important tasks in the covenant community of Israel. Sam Storms is helpful here when he writes about the work of the Holy Spirit. He says this, We should also consider what David, King David, had in mind in Psalm 51:11, when he prayed, God or Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. It's really important to know who it is that's praying that prayer. King David, take not your Holy Spirit from me. This does not mean he envisions the loss of his salvation because of the sins that he committed against Uriah and Bathsheba. It's not a withdrawal of God's saving grace upon him. Rather, as we're looking at him in his kingly role, his prayer is that God would not withdraw his enabling or anointing of his spirit that has empowered and equipped him to lead Israel as king. We can just think for a moment. I know we're not there yet in 1 Samuel, but in 1 Samuel chapter 16, David may have had this very thought in mind, this disturbing scene in 1 Samuel 16 where we read, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Because of his sins, the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. And David's praying that this same thing would not befall him because of his sin. The king understands his need for the anointing of the Lord. King David does at least. And what we see, the spirit rushing upon Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10, I believe is this enabling to perform a specific task for God's people. You know, as we look at Saul's life, we haven't really gotten into some of the difficulties of decisions that he made as a king. But what came to my mind when thinking about those who um, have experienced spiritual things in this life, and then maybe have built kind of a thought process of their own right standing before God. Because I've experienced some things, therefore, or ergo, I'm right before God. Everything's good. I've, in a sense, got my ticket. I plan on meeting Christ in heaven once I die. And their confidence is not rooted in saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. And I I was thinking about a passage in Matthew chapter 7, and I want you to just hear it and see if it correlates at all with what you might be thinking about in the, the, the Spirit's work in Saul's life, for example. So in Matthew chapter 7, we hear from the Lord Jesus, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Thinking about Saul's life, and what Christ is saying here, and what we looked at last Lord's Day, it's not about sacrifices and offerings that, 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 that makes God happy or receiving you or um, pleasing to the Father. It is obedience to His Word. Are you one who says you love Christ yet do not obey His commands? Well, He tells us, those who love me... Obey my commands. Something for us to chew on and think about, to reflect upon. All these signs came about as Samuel had predicted in Saul's life. It is precisely because they are so strange that they are so significant. They testify to God's sovereign hand over all that happens in in Saul's life, and therefore Saul to confirm, to assure, to let him know that this is from God and God alone, that he would be made king. Now, in passing, I just want to remind you to look at verses 11 through 16 and observe how people are looking at Saul as he's prophesying and his encounter with his uncle, and they're all trying to figure out what is going on here. And they're not given answers, but Saul is. And I think that's the most important kind of uh, foundation here or reality of what's happening in the first part of our passage. This is confirmation for Saul. Now we move, as the story continues, into the public coronation for the people of Israel. And I want us to focus our attention on this gathering that happens at Mizpah. So this scene at Mizpah is important. This, if you remember, if you've been following along, if you haven't, that's okay. But in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Mizpah is part of that narrative story as well. This was the place where Samuel had earlier led the nation in repentance before the Lord. And if you remember, it resulted in a victory over the Philistines. Samuel returns now to Mizpah. Not merely to remember what happened prior, but it makes me think he's doing this again in hopes that there can be repentance, that the people will understand that they have rejected God in asking for a king like the nations. Samuel took this occasion, as you're looking at the text, starting in verse 17, he took this occasion to rebuke the nation for its unbelief in demanding a king like the nations. And this rebuke really comes in two parts. The first is it's 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 beginning with a reminder of who God is and what he has done. This is the God that led you out of slavery in Egypt. He delivered you from all the peoples that have oppressed you. He is the one that saves his people. Thus says the Lord the God of Israel it is me who has done this. Samuel knew that God had been faithful on every occasion, and he wants the people to hear of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness and his deliverance. God is the deliverer. And then the second part of his rebuke was that the people of Israel had rejected their God. He wants them to hear very clearly. In, in desiring for a king like the nations, you have rejected Your God, who has saved you by wanting a king set over them. Israel, it is true, has in their history experienced a lot of oppression. And it makes me think about all of God's people. God's people are sometimes tempted to avoid trials, tribulations, and oppression by fitting in with the world. And this is exactly what Israel did here. They have experienced oppression. In a sense, they're tapping out and saying, okay, there has to be a better alternative. And they're looking for it. And they think, as they gaze around, physically looking at the other nations, man, it does seem pretty good what they've got going on there. And so suppressing the truth of who God is and how he has delivered them, and led by the deceitfulness of sin and the flesh, they look around and they say, That that's actually what we want. And we're all prone to wander. We're all tempted to avoid pain. None of us like pain. None of us like trials and tribulations and oppression. And so many of us flee, just like the Israelites, looking for something to, to satisfy, to, to bring peace and healing. And this is exactly what they're doing. And for us, a lot of times, choosing the things of the world may look a little different. Maybe it's you're choosing to adopt a manner of speech or dress or, or priorities that the world have has. If you make those your own, well, maybe then you'll be directed in the right path. So priorities of money and time and talent. If we, if we move in that direction, maybe, just maybe, we'll avoid the hardships or the oppression. This is what they were doing in demanding a king. If only we could have a political system like what we see out there, things will be better here. And, and I read this in a commentary and it's so good. If the apostle James had been at Mizpah, he would have said to them what he said in James 4:4 you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Christians, brothers and sisters, if you desire to be like the world, you're being just like the Israelites here when they demand for a king. So the people have gathered, and they've heard this rebuke. You have to imagine at this point that that Saul is present, And he's hearing how this gathering's going so far. I've been thinking about this a lot because we later hear about him hiding behind the baggage, right? And it's really strange, and man couldn't make up a story like this. This is coming from God's Word. But I'm thinking, okay, this is what's transpiring so far. Much anticipation is building at this point. It's solemn, I'm sure, at this point. What is actually coming about next? After these words that have been spoken about our rebellion, where is this headed, Samuel? Was this another sin like that of the sin of Achan? Do you remember in Joshua chapter 6 and 7, the people of Israel disobeyed the Lord when he made Jericho fall. And because of Achan keeping some of the devoted things which they were not to keep, God allowed them then to lose the battle of Ai. And so then God tells Joshua to bring the people together by, by tribes and casting lots that it was then determined as the lots were cast that it was Achan who had sinned against the Lord and judgment played out that day against him and his household and they were destroyed. Could that have been going through the minds of the people as they're hearing about their rebellion and rejecting God and choosing a king like all the nations? Casting lots that happened in our story was the same that happened there and was was pretty much a standard pattern and practice, the, the casting of lots, all throughout Scripture, even into the New Testament. If you remember, when Judas Iscariot had hung himself, no longer an apostle, and Matthias was chosen by Lot. And we need to remember God uses this process to reveal His will in the Scriptures. We hear in Proverbs 16.33, which was mentioned last Lord's Day, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so this casting of lot If for no other reason, if they have lost confidence in Samuel, the casting of Lot lets the people know this is not man-made. This is from the Lord, exactly who is being chosen to be king. Then Samuel brought all the tribes, and this unfolded until they got down, whittling down all the way to the son of Kish, who was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, he could not be found. So they had to inquire of the Lord Where is this guy? Who is this? Is there still someone to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. (laughs) Think with me for a moment. In the previous chapter, we have runaway donkeys. And in this chapter, we have a runaway king. It's just the irony is thick as we move towards them pulling this young man out behind the baggage. And the description is pretty amazing. As he's being pulled out, I'm sure he's trying to hide himself, but remember, this is a big, big man. And so as he's being pulled out, the people are watching You know, him stand up straighter and straighter and amazed at the size of this man. He looks the part, head and shoulders above the rest, good-looking, and he is standing before them. And we hear from the people, Long live the king! Now, Thinking about Saul's actions, I, I, I don't have a definitive reason for why he hid himself. Some commentators talk about this being a, a form of humility. It doesn't seem to be that to me as I'm looking at his life unfold. Uh, maybe a besetting sin as we watch him in leadership is timidity, the fear of man. Um, but there's so much happening here that may have led him to that hiding place we're just not known, we're, we don't know exactly why he's finding himself behind the baggage, but he is pulled out and he is declared to be the king. Now, what you would typically expect, at least um, in our modern hearing of this story, is that then the king would have an opportunity to speak to his people, you know, the inaugural speech to lay out his plan for the next several years, what's going to unfold under his leadership. And that's not what happens. And very purposefully, that is not what happens. Samuel is the one who speaks. And once again, throughout this whole narrative, we are seeing that even though they desired a king like all the nations, God is ruling and reigning in control of all things. And This is the man whom the Lord has chosen to be king over his people. And so this is unfolding before us, and we hear Samuel then get up, and he is the one who then lays out what this is going to look like. And not, again, from his vantage point, but from the Lord. God is still on the throne, regardless of which king you want to stand and rule over you. Please do not miss this. So, the rights and duties of his kingship is made clear. And this is actually really important. It's not Saul being anointed as king and then leading however he sees fit, it is under the rule and reign of God. These rights and duties were not told exactly what it was that Samuel wrote down. But we have been reminded previously of what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And I want you to hear it again because it seems that this has to be the foundation of what is being communicated here as a king, a monarchy, is being established for the first time in Israel. So hear from the word of the Lord. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. He may not be a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself himself excessive silver and gold. And then in verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. At Mizpah, God, in a sense, has outmaneuvered the people. They were bent on abandoning the kingship of God by getting a king for themselves to be just like all the nations. But now they have a king and they have a written, and they have a, a written basically constitution. The rights and duties of the king has been laid before them, which God's kingdom will then be used. It will be used for God's kingdom to, to be preserved. So in all of this, what I what I want us to see clearly is that God is king, regardless of who you choose. He is the one who is on the throne. And so throughout these verses, we see God's continual and relentless sovereignty over all the situation. The people demanded a king, but they were not able to achieve the independence that they wanted from God. I want to just think for a moment about God being still king and ruler over his people as Saul is installed as the king, as this monarchy begins. So just as God would reign over King Saul by means of the law of his kingship, God exercises that same sovereignty over all of our lives through the statutes and rules of his holy word. God has given us the rights and rules of our lives. Now, there are many who would say, hogwash, I don't care if that is right or God's rule, I am rejecting it. Okay, that does not change the reality that God is king over you. So as we think about this, God being sovereign over his people, he is the one who reigns over us through his word. And this is what Samuel was was giving to the monarchy. Do not forget, even though this man is standing before you today, he is actually submitting to the Lordship of God in all of of this kingship. So God's rules, and His uh, His Word, is is given to us not for us to practice legalism, but actually to render faithful obedience to our gracious Sovereign. I don't know how you have viewed God's law in your life. Some think that they need to shake clean of it, like it's it's oppressing them, it's weighing them down. You will never view the law correctly unless you get the order of Exodus 20 right. So in Exodus 20, we get the Ten Commandments. But I want you to understand that if you do not keep verse 2 in front of verses 3 through 17, you will get it all out of whack. So in verse 2, God says, I am the one who has set you free from bondage. It is by grace that I have delivered you. This is really important. I have provided all that you need. The power that Pharaoh had, I decimated. The way in which you would avoid death and destruction, I provided a lamb. If you were struggling in going out, I am the one who parted the seas for you. I am the one who has freed my people. Now I give you my commandments. Do you understand that order? It is essential in understanding the law of God. You don't keep the commandments of God in order to earn your freedom. That is a gift. You cannot earn it. We all fall short. We, we miserably fail in earning anything before God. You keep them in order to enjoy freedom. God's law is good. To preserve and maintain it is exactly what we need in our lives, to avoid becoming slaves again to anything or anyone. So God has laid down his rights and duties for his people in every sphere of our life. So in the new covenant, we hear very specifically the rights and duties of a husband to his spouse. And this is actually freedom. This is good. We see this in in so many different areas of our lives. We see this uh, in the relationship between a parent and their children, between masters and servants, between pastors and church members, between civil authority and citizens. Christians are to be taught To live by these rules and to know that observing these laws of God does not hinder our well being, but rather it is the way in which believers experience the freedom in which God bestows upon us his richest blessings. James, again, in his book, his epistle, refers to this as God's perfect law, as a law of liberty. May we see this. There were some present that day at Mizpah that were not able to see this, and we see that in the way that this passage concludes in the last couple of verses. What's really interesting, you may go, well, we've already had the big meeting in Mizpah, but sometimes what happens after the meeting is is as significant as, as what happens during the meeting. So we hear about everyone then going home upon Samuel's word. Everyone returns to their house And we have these men of valor who have also been touched by God going with Saul to his home. But then we also are introduced to some worthless fellows who don't have anything good to say about this new appointed king. So in all situations like this, we've got supporters and detractors. And we want to think for a moment what was actually going on here. I don't think it was between those who wanted life to continue on as it was before and those who wanted a king, but very specifically, things seem to be going okay in this situation of casting of lots and Saul being brought out and them saying, this is the king, long live the king. But then it starts to kind of unravel a little bit, and I think it's because Samuel shares with the people that this kingship is not going to look like you want it to look. There were some who still wanted a king that would lead them just like all the nations. When they start hearing about the rights and the duties of the kingship, I'm sure these worthless men got bent way out of shape. So it was more of a, do we want a covenantal monarchy set up and established by God where the king is Always in submission to God's rule and reign, or do we want a king like all the nations? And so we have these two divergent groups. And what we see in all of this is that really, um, God giving them this king was, in a sense, a form of judgment, just like we saw with the sin of Achan. It, It looked very different. There was destruction of that household that day in Joshua. But we were told that God was displeased. The people had rejected him. And so now his judgment is actually to give them a king. So God in his anger, Hosea chapter 13 verse 11, is confirming this. I gave you a king in my anger. God in his anger gave Saul to Israel. But... In His mercy, God has given us His Son as King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So while this is not heading in a really great direction here, this establishment of kingly rule over the people should be that sign, that foreshadowing, pointing to God's mercy and grace upon His people and providing the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 1 we read, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. One pastor and commentator, Richard Phillips, writes these so helpful words that I want to read to you in his commentary on 1 Samuel. If our hearts are opened by God to see Jesus In the glory of His grace, we will crown Him with many crowns, each of us gladly yielding our hearts and crying out to Jesus, Long live the King! His reign will never fail and never end, and those who bow to His throne will reign forever and ever with Him in glory. Sometimes, Really important questions come out of the mouths of worthless fellows. And at the end of our passage, they ask this question. I think it's it's a good question to ask. How can this man save us? Now, the motives were all wrong. But the question, how can this man save us, is a good question for all of us to ask. And this morning, there is only one king who can truly save us. And I pray that you have eyes to see the kingdom of God and see who it is who is ruling and reigning at the throne. And it is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. May this be the day of salvation. Let us pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Father, throughout this chapter of your word, we see so clearly your sovereign rule and reign. Father, if there are some in this room who hear the word sovereignty and it leads them to fear and worry and concern, may they today repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that your sovereignty is the very best thing that we could ever ask or imagine. To know that things are not just happening by chance or happenstance randomly, but that you are over and in and through all things, accomplishing your purposes for your people, brings great peace and hope and joy for us who hear and know that we are resting in your hands. May that be good news to our, our hearts and our minds this morning. And as I heard coming from one of the Sunday school classrooms this morning, May we, your people, rejoice that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And may we, as your people, joyfully follow your ways, your rules, and your duties for us as your people, knowing that they bring life, not that we are somehow saved through them, But once we experience your grace that you have lavished upon us, we now walk in a manner that pleases you, and you have given us what that looks like. Your law is good. May it be honey to our lips as we think about who it is who has given us this perfect law. And may we as your people delight to please our Father as we walk in obedience and faith. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.